Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Do you want to make a difference? I want to make an explanation that this is not just a positive mental attitude type of message. It really is against the backdrop of God and godly things and God's kingdom. There is a passage of Scripture in Isaiah 32, verses 5 through 8. And the context of this passage has to do with Isaiah seeing a better world someday. The millennium. A time will come when things are going to change dramatically and drastically for we who are God's children, believers in the hope of what the Bible promises us for the future. And inside of that passage where Isaiah is describing this millennial age, I pick up in the fifth verse, well, he describes a little bit what it'll be like during that time. He says, no longer will the fool be called noble or the scoundrel be highly respected. Now, that's interesting because he's contrasting that to our time and to his time when fools and scoundrels tend to get a lot of honor and attention. But it won't always be like that. When Christ comes to rule, he's going to change all those dynamics, isn't he? Fools speak folly. Their hearts are bent on evil. They practice ungodliness and they spread error concerning the Lord. The hungry they leave empty and from the thirsty they withhold water. Scoundrels use wicked methods, but they make up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. And then this simple verse, this short verse, verse 8, contrasts that to the noble person. The noble make noble plans, and by noble deeds they stand. That is where I'm going to take my sermon today. So this reoccurring theme in the history of mankind is man's search to make a significant positive impact on their little corner of the world. You do that. We all, to some degree, do that. And the question kind of is, what, is the, what, are we, what are we born for? What's my purpose in life? And again, I say this sounds a little bit generic, doesn't it? But within the framework of what's my purpose in God's kingdom? What did God create me for? And we, when we don't, When we're not tuned in to God's purpose, we're not functioning in that capacity, we feel lost. We just don't know what to do with ourselves. 
There's an emptiness there. Maybe most of you have seen that little cartoonish depiction of somebody climbing a steep mountain and finding, finding the holy guru sitting atop the mountain. And their question is, what is the meaning of life? And this man is supposed to give them the meaning of life so they can go on and be fulfilled in everything they do. Well, that just demonstrates the human tendency to want to have purpose, want to have a meaning in my life. If we can only think of the meaning in life is making enough money to pay our bills so we can be out of debt by the time we retire and then die, we don't get a lot of redemption from that. What did we do along the way? How did we change anybody? How did we change our world? How did we make a difference in anybody with respect to our impact for God? So people feel this urge to do something. They claim that in the things that they are doing, they do it, they're motivated because we're making a difference in somebody's life. Have you seen that before? Sports coaches, volunteer sports coaches, little league, soccer, basketball, youth basketball. And I've been involved in many of those youth sports. And I've heard so often from other parents involved in that that they justify their involvement by saying, we just want to make a difference in some child's life. See, that's in the heart of man. And that always sounds a little bit empty to me because I'm sure that being a friend and being a role model to a young person is, is good and it's valuable, but it's a very short-sighted benefit that you, prove, that, you, that you provide to them unless there's some spiritual, long-term, eternal quality to it. So it's wonderful that people want to make a difference in a young person's life by being their little league coach or their soccer coach. But when that's done, what have we done for eternity? People volunteer to go work at the community soup kitchen and food pantry and homeless shelters, and they'll give up their Thanksgiving to go down and help feed a Thanksgiving meal to the homeless. Because why? We want to make a difference in somebody's life. But it's more than just providing them a meal to make a real difference, isn't it? So in our opening scripture, we read about what the, the fool does and how the world oftentimes exalts the fool. And then we read, read about what the noble person does. And Isaiah begins this chapter by saying, A king shall reign in righteousness... And a prince shall rule in judgment. And this sets up the millennial reign. He describes this world, this future world that we're looking for, where the wrongs are going to be righted. And that which is defective, that we don't like, is going to eventually be perfected. And we pick up on this prophet's description of this millennial age, when in the midst of this, also, the world's values are going to be discarded. 
And no longer will they look towards wicked people and foolish people as being honorable people. But they'll finally look towards righteous people as being the honorable. And then Isaiah tells about the power of influence that the noble person has. But the word noble doesn't connect with the younger generation. I don't see them as striving to be noble. As a matter of fact, they don't probably even assign any, any connotation to that, that of, of any significance whatsoever. Noble, why do I want to be noble? Who's noble? I don't have any friends that are noble. Nobody in my circle knows what noble is. Well, there's a sense in which noble has to do with royalty. Let's discard that part. It has nothing to do with the way that this word is translated and used in, in some of the translations. NIV is one of them that uses the word noble. The, the King James does not use the word noble. The King James Version uses the word liberal. And does that have all kinds of connotations? And if we were to read that with our 21st century understanding, we would say that the liberal man makes liberal plans and does liberal deeds. Really what they're trying to do, even in agreement with a lot of the other translations of this passage, is when they're saying noble, they're talking about what is upright, virtuous, good, righteous, decent, worthy, moral, ethical, reputable. You see what we're talking about, noble now? And so as I use that word, and it's not my favorite word to use, I've given you the synonyms for that so we understand when I say nobility, it's just goodness and righteousness and morality, okay? The noble person, the good person, the righteous person. They're the ones that we're focusing on. Now the question becomes this. Are these qualities that I just listed, nobleness, righteousness, morality, goodness, purity, are these things that the younger generation is interested in? I can't say that that's always so because the things that are glamorized are what the fool does. We talked a little bit last week about heroes. The, the, the things that young pe people do are promoted by their heroes. It's glamorized to do the things that they do. Vulgarity is glamorized. Corruption is glamorized. So I'm wondering, is there even a market for nobility? Is there anyone of the young generation coming on who really, their aspirations are, I want to grow up to be decent, upright, moral, ethical, reputable, or virtuous? Well, I hope there are. I hope there are those that lock, lock on to that and they say, that's what I want with my life. I hope that they understand that's where pure happiness and joy really is in life. I hope they realize that the opposite of that leads to all kinds of misery. I hope so. But I don't think that's the main message that our young people are getting from this world whatsoever. So everything today I'm sharing with you, as I go rather rapidly through these three points, keep in mind, how can I make a difference in my world for God? 
How can I come to the end of my journey and say, I feel, Lord, I have been significant in this world. I've touched somebody's life. They are changed. They are improved because what I have been able to share with them and do for them. First of all, I suggest to you that in order to make a positive difference in this world, you must begin with being a person of noble character. Character precedes everything. Before we ever hope to have a positive effect on others and on our world, we have to have our own act together. We have to take care of our personal business. If our society slips into this error of promoting noble philosophies and principles without living out those principles, we become theorists instead of practitioners. We can talk about what is good and right, but unless we are showing that and modeling that, it's all theory. And we can relate to this as parents, those of us who have already achieved parenthood. If you are not yet and you're going to, you will relate to this when you get there. We have the highest goals for our children. I'm always somewhat amused, if not entertained, by the new young parents that start making the proclamations about what their child is going to do. They have high aspirations. My wife and I had the best of intentions and highest aspirations for our children. We knew the things that many kids did, but we vowed our kids are not going to do that. Our kids are not going to be like that. We had these high ideals. And I'm sure with us, there were those who were standing over at the side snickering at us and saying, just wait. But I don't know of a decent father or mother who doesn't excitedly anticipate that their child is going to be exceptional. That they're going to start teaching them how to do algebra before they're in preschool. They want all of these, these wonderful accomplishments for their child. And it's good. That's a part of the thrill of parenthood, is molding these young people into what you want them to be. But more important than anything else is molding them into the kind of person God wants them to be. We want them to be the star on the sports team. We want them to be able to bat and to field and to throw and to kick a football and kick a soccer ball and, and shoot a basketball and just be a phenom. We want them to graduate from college before they're out of high school. We want all of these things for our children. We want good things. But I don't know of one decent father or mother who gets excited and anticipates the day that their children can get old enough to start experimenting with drugs. Because that's not in our plans, is it? I don't know any decent mother or father who says, I just can't wait until my son and my daughter, their hormones kick in and they start experimenting and sleeping around with everybody. I don't know any parent that's excited for that to happen. I don't know of any parent that says of their child, when they were so excited, they said their first word, Mama, 
daddy. Whatever the word was, they were so excited. I can't, I don't know of any decent parent that once the child uttered their first word that said, I cannot wait until they get old enough to use all of the vulgarities in the English language. Don't know any parent personally that's ever done that. Sadly, there are some evidently that do just that. Some of you who are connected to the Internet and get some of these videos that go viral, you are possibly aware of the recent home video that was put on the Internet. It was a video that was seized by the police whenever they went to the house and arrested the parents and took the child into custody. And the parents were making the video of their two-year-old child that while the camera was running, they were coaching the child to use the most disgusting, vulgar words they could, they could use. And then when the child would repeat it, they would laugh, and they were excited, and then they'd throw another word out for the child. And the child would use that, and they were excited. This went on. The video ran for approximately 20 minutes of the parents coaching this two-year-old child to talk as filthy as anything you can imagine. And they were proud of it. And it even hurts to think of that child being purposely corrupted like that. And the parents don't care. It just rips your heart out, doesn't it? But evidently, there's some parents somewhere that can't wait until their children get old enough to be nasty and vulgar like them because it's cute to the parents. But most parents are not like that. They have higher and nobler plans for their children. But how can we make a godly impact on this world if I don't first model a godly life? Now, look again at what Isaiah says about the fool. And I'll summarize it for you. Number one, he insinuates that the fool is very quick to do evil things. He practices ungodliness. He pursues ungodliness. He doesn't know God. He steers clear of God. He doesn't want any chance of learning of God. That interrupts his life. Number two, the Bible says the Lord withholds his blessings from those kind of people. And number three, the fool speaks errors about the Lord and the things of the Lord. Now, I, I don't know how many of you were aware of uh, the man who took over Larry King's uh, television program, Larry King Live. Uh, the man is Piers Morgan, had his own talk show on CNN. And he just about philosophically and morally embodies everything contrary to Christianity and our values. He had an interview with Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. And in that interview with him, as they were talking uh, about the Bible and the Constitution, Piers Morgan came through with this gem. He said, quote, Both the Bible and the Constitution are basically inherently flawed. He told Warren, it's time for the Bible to have an amendment. Well, there is a mentality that people think the Bible needs to be updated to match our lifestyle. 
instead of our lifestyle modified to match what God says. Now we get lots of amens here. I'm preaching to the choir. But you understand outside of this building that there is a mentality of many people that believe exactly what Mr. Morgan articulated. The Bible is old, it's antiquated, it's outdated, it needs to be modernized. There's things in there that that just don't fit our society anymore. Either we throw it away or we update it and change it. They don't understand the eternal aspect and characteristic and value of God's Word. Thy words, O Lord, are established in the heavens forever. This unchangeable Word of God. The next thing is, let's contrast what the fool does and what God does with the fool with that of the noble person, the righteous, the upright, the moral, the decent person. According to Isaiah, the noble person acknowledges the Lord and wants to please Him. The noble person honors God's Word as it is. The noble person doesn't try to adjust the truth to accommodate his lifestyle. He seeks to adjust his lifestyle to accommodate the truth. And I think it's important to understand this as well. Noble people are also very sensitive to what is in error. The Bible says that the foolish man teaches and speaks and preaches error about God's Word. But the noble man is sensitive to errors about God's truth, even among his peers. In other words, if there's something that's going on in the church, a preacher, a teacher, even just a a lay person that is saying something that doesn't line up biblically, the noble person is sensitive to that. They understand something doesn't ring true. Let's correct this. We have to keep the Word of God integrous. We have to keep the standard pure. Now, every, even ancient civilizations, understood the value of measuring things. And there was a time when close was good enough. When God told Noah to build an ark, and he gave him dimensions of spans and cubits, You understand a span is when your hand is splayed, it's from the tip of the thumb to the tip of the finger. That's a span. So you lay it down, and then you do it again. Now, if you do that about a hundred times, you may be off a little bit. And a cubit was twice the span. Now, here's what you can do right now. The cubit is the length of your forearm. And if you take and measure the length of your forearm with two spans, you're going to find out that your forearm is, is just, that'll be from the tip of your finger down, it, your, your forearm is just about the length of two of your hand spans. Of course, I don't have the same span and cubit that you do because your body's different. Close was good enough. The more it became important to be accurate in our measurements, the more they began to establish standards. 
You had to have standards so whenever they were minting coins, even in in, uh, ancient times, there had to be a standard for a coin, the weight of a coin, so you weren't exchanging a heavier coin for a lighter coin and getting cheated. So standards begin to be established. We have sophisticated technology today that absolutely demands the stringent standards of weight and measure. The international standard for the kilogram is now represented by the prototype, which is a small cylinder of platinum that weighs exactly what they decided a kilogram ought to weigh. And it's kept at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures outside of Paris, France. You see that little picture we've got up there unfortunately because of contamination now they can measure that the weight of the prototype is starting to change it's only micrograms but when you're dealing with science that needs absolute precision for accurate results that makes a difference and now they're finding out that they can measure lengths instead of having a physical object to establish the length, or the forearm of a man, or the span of a hand. They can use light waves, which are fixed. They don't vary. And they will always have access to light waves. So they can measure a light wave. That becomes a standard of length by which we can measure, uh, if it's metric, meters, kilometers. And we have a very accurate basis. We can't do mathematical and scientific calculations that are trying to position planets at certain times, at future times, whenever we do space travel. Uh, we, we can't do that if we don't have a good standard to go by. It has to be true. It has to be fixed. God's Word is a standard that is so vital it can't be changed. And contamination cannot be allowed to change it. And we can't adjust it for future because uh, future generations and, and future cultures because you make a mess whenever you do that. It has to be the original. When I was a carpenter and learned how to cut rafters, I used to cut one rafter out of the straightest board I had. And I marked on their pattern. And every time that we would cut multiple rafters, we'd always use the pattern to mark every one of them. So I showed one of my carpenters how to mark and cut the rafters. And they were starting to get short as I was nailing them up. I come down out of the top of the house and I go down, what's happening? I don't know. Well, let me see what you're doing. He threw a board up there, marked it. And then he sent that board up. And after he cut this one, he used it to mark the next one. And I said, where's the pattern? He said, what pattern? He'd used it one time and sent it up. Nothing was the same after that. When you got away from the pattern, you had changes that just weren't even going to work. Not even for a house. I used to have carpenters on my crew that if they said it's close enough for government work, they got their walking papers. If they said made a sloppy 
cut or something, nailed it up, it didn't fit. If they said, you can't see it from my house, they were down the road. That doesn't work. It's got to be right. But if I'm picky about my carpenter work, I'm picky about God's word. I'm picky about people changing it and modifying it. I'm picky about getting away from the pattern and getting into something else and measuring life today by what people do who are changing and evolving. It goes back to God's word. This is the unchanging pattern we go by. We have to be noble people by relying on the word of God and aligning up with what God expects of us. This is the unchanging standard. Number two, if you want to make a positive difference in this world for God, you must be willing to dream noble dreams. Now, that's when it's beginning to sound a little bit like positive mental attitude. This is where it's sounding a little bit like a a nice speech somewhere. Just go and dream noble dreams. But we're talking about for God, right? Talking about in God's kingdom. And it says in verse 8, but the, the noble man makes noble plans. We're not called into the kingdom to be inert occupants. There is significant language in the New Testament that likens the kingdom to a vineyard or a farm that needs laborers. When you come into the kingdom, you're coming into a workplace. You're coming into a field that needs tending. You're coming into a vineyard that needs tending. We're not coming into a place where all this work has to be done. But nobody wants to do it. Lanny Wolf wrote a song that said, from God's perspective, my house is full, but my fields are empty. Who will go and work for me today? A full house and no laborers? Jesus said, look at the harvest field. It's ripe unto harvest. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest that he will send laborers into the field. Have you been praying that? Has that been your prayer? We are commanded in the Bible to pray that. Lord, send laborers. But we're not commanded to ignore our own availability. We're not to pray, send anybody but me. We're not to pray, God, I'm busy, go find somebody. But this prayer of sending laborers has to do with, God, what can I do? Like Isaiah. Here am I. Send me. I want to go. I've had this discussion with several of my Christian friends in recent years. We talk about the calling of God. As a matter of fact, Let me preempt this by saying we went to the pastor board banquet for the section Monday night down in Burlington, and we got to sit down with a couple of Chi Alpha, three of three Chi Alpha work, Chi Alpha workers, and uh, Chi Alpha is the branch of ministry in the Assemblies of God that has to do with seeing ministries founded on secular school campuses and being a light in the darkness. So this young Chi Alpha man sitting at the table asks me, he said, tell me in just a few short words what one thing you would like me to know about being in the ministry. 
I said, I'm so glad you asked that because I have an answer. I said, don't make God's will this tiny little speck in the middle of this big circle. And you're going to spend your whole life trying to find how to hit the spot. I said, unless God gives you a very clear, unmistakable message about what he wants you to do, this circle is the field. Get busy. Just go for it. Just do. Until God tells you different, anything you do for God is godly. Because if you don't understand this, you're going to waste your time trying to wonder, what does God want me to do? Where can I go? What can I do? Where's the dot? God, tell me where the dot is in my life. You need to get busy. It's not about hearing some unmistakable voice from heaven. It's not about receiving a phone call from God. It's not about handwriting scribbled in the plaster of the wall. It's about just getting into the harvest field and start harvesting. Wherever you are, just start working for God. God will not fault you for that. Now, you might find opportunities to be more effective at other areas. Do that. You might grow into finding your gift. Do that. But don't sit there without purpose, wondering, God, what do you want me to do? Here's God's message to you through me. Get busy. Do something. Because we weren't saved into the kingdom to sit idle. I I tend to believe God likes dreamers. There's another interesting parable about Jesus telling of a man that went on a journey and, and left certain amounts of money, various amounts of money with certain individuals to watch over till he returns. You'll, you'll find that in the 25th chapter of Matthew. you found find it in the 19th chapter of Luke. Uh, the details vary just a little bit. The principle's the same. The man goes on a journey, and he leaves behind, entrusts three people with three different amounts of money. In Matthew, he says he left five talents with one and two with another and one with a third, each according to their ability. Now, don't forget that. That's thrown in there. The the man discerns. I think this man here has proven he can handle five. I trust him with five. This man is pretty good, but he's a little bit untested. I'm going to give him two because so far I like what I see, but I don't know all about him. And this man over here, uh, he's a disappointment, but I'm going to take a chance on him anyway and see what he'll do. I'll give him one. And when the man returns from a far country... and he just asked him to, to, to watch his stuff. He didn't tell him what else to do with it. Just, just take care of it till I get back. But the people who received it took it up on themselves to invest this guy's money. How many of you are going to do that when your friend leaves you his money, her money? And he comes back, and he says, where's my money? And you say, well, I invested it while you're gone, and we lost our shirt. See, it's a little bit hard to convert into today's mentality of what we understand, but in the way that Jesus tells this, it's got an interesting twist on it. While they were gone, the man with five said, I've got an opportunity to take my friend's money, and this is a sure deal, and double it. And the next man saw a similar opportunity, and he doubled his. The man with five had ten. The man with two had four. And it all goes back to the man that owned it. They didn't take a cut. 
And the man with one had no plan whatsoever to do that. The Bible says he went and hid it somewhere. And when the man came back, said, where's my money? He handed it back to him. Now, maybe that would have been all right, except the man saw two others that were very creative and industrious. And he says, now this man took a chance and doubled my money while I was gone. I love that man. And this man took a chance and doubled my money. And I think that, that, that they are noteworthy, commendable. But you, what's wrong with you? And the, the objection that the man had with the idle man was, he said, if you would have just went down and deposited it somewhere where it earns interest, I don't care if it's 1% interest. If you'd have done something, it would have been better than doing nothing. Now that's the point of the whole parable, is God hates nothing. He hates non-productivity. He hates fruitlessness. He wants to see some increase. Everybody say, God wants me to increase. Okay, you committed yourself. God doesn't want you to be the same this time next year that you are today. God wants to see increase. Have you been given grace? He wants to see you increase in His grace. Have you been given talents? He wants to see you increase in your talents. Whatever God has given to you, whatever He has blessed you with, when He comes and finds that you didn't do anything but hide it, He's not going to be happy. Invest of what God has given you. And take the risk. That's the second thing is that God likes people who are willing to take a risk with what he has given them. He blesses that. He commends that. He does not commend fearfulness. He does not commend burying it and playing it safe. But what if I fail? We're given no indication whatsoever that God would have been disappointed in these men in this parable. Of course, the application is obvious. It's not just about a man loaning some money. There's a spiritual application. There's no indication whatsoever that God would have been disappointed if they had tried and failed. He was only disappointed because they didn't try. What if I fail? Dream big for God. Because, see, grace is for failure. That's what grace is. It's for when you try and you fail, God's grace is sufficient. There is no grace for fear and lack of effort. God doesn't come to the lazy person and say, you didn't try, but that's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't come to the man who was afraid and said, that's okay for being afraid. My grace is sufficient for you. He rebukes them. He rebukes fear. He rebukes unbelief. He rebukes idleness. But to the man who does his best and comes before God and has little to show for it, there is grace that is sufficient. And he only commends them. Well, at least you gave it the best you had. Dreaming big forces me to rely on God. If I dream small, or if I don't dream at all, 
I don't need God. I'm, I'm moving within my capabilities. If I keep measuring what is possible and staying with the bound, within the bounds of what is reasonable, I don't need faith. If I know how to balance a checkbook and manage my money, I don't need faith. But if I dream beyond what is possible and I lean on God, noble dream, noble people make noble dreams. And it's so difficult for us to move out of that safety zone. We keep calling it good stewardship. That's what the man who buried the talent called it. There has to be an acknowledgement of the difference between being a good steward and being non-productive. The final point is, in order to make a positive difference in this world, you have to be willing to do noble deeds. Here's Here's a riddle. Five frogs are sitting on a log and four decide to jump off. How many are left on the log? Five, because deciding to do something is not the same thing as doing something. We can make all kinds of decisions at Westside. We can have business meetings and board meetings, and we can decide we're going to do something, but if we don't ever do it, we've done nothing. We can vote we're going to do something, but we better get up and make it happen. Dreaming is a good start. But it's not the end. Dreamers who are doers are the complete package. Plans without action are nothing but fantasy. Inert dreamers live in this make-believe world of how good everything would be if we just did everything I dreamed of. And we read of these wonderful, challenging, inspiring stories in the Bible of these Bible heroes who took action. They defied the odds. They recorded unimaginable accomplishments in the name of the Lord because they took actions when other people around them didn't want to do anything. They were afraid. And I I can just call some of the more popular ones. David as a teenage shepherd boy with no military experience leaves the cowering soldiers behind the rocks and he goes out and confronts Goliath. An impossible situation, but he beat the odds because he did more than just make plans. He took action. Shammah from the Old Testament, who is famous for having stood his parcel of ground, his little farm patch, against the Philistines. When the Philistines would come into the land, the first thing they would do is go and destroy everybody's garden. And everybody got so... so frustrated with the Philistines doing this and trying to make them miserable uh, and drive them out of the land that when the Philistines come, they just ran. And Shammah had his garden, and he said, I'm not running. The neighbors are packing up. The Philistines are coming. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. This is my ground. I'm going to stand my ground. He defeated the odds. And the Philistines couldn't drive him out. And he kept his ground. And single-handedly, he protected that from the enemy. 85-year-old man listens to the hesitations of the younger people who are wondering if they have enough power and might to really go take the land. And then Caleb steps up and says in his 85-year-old voice, Give me this mountain. I feel as young as the day I was 40. Paul ventured out with the gospel to cities and territories and people who had never heard the message about the resurrection of Christ and his provision for salvation. He wanted to take the message. 
But going outside Jerusalem was not enough. Going outside Judea was not enough. Going beyond Samaria was not enough. Going into the rest of Asia was not enough. He wanted to go into Europe. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he did what nobody else was doing. There were times when weather was a tremendous factor. Travel was slow and primitive. Storms would come. Robbers were on the road. They would capture him, rob him, beat him. There were times he went for days without eating food. He couldn't sleep at night. Sometimes it was the danger. Sometimes it was the weather. Sometimes it was just a rocky ground. He went through all of these, but he had a dream. There were violent enemies that when he went into town, sometimes that they opposed him and drove him out of town and beat him nearly to a pulp. Beat him until his body was limp and they figured they had killed him. But he would gather himself together and go back in and preach again in town because he had a vision. He had a dream. With the definition of nobility being one of decency and righteousness and virtue, I'm, I'm calling everybody here today. I'm calling you to nobility. I'm calling you to action. Young people, I'm calling you to nobility. Hell is calling you to mediocrity. Hell is calling you to compromise. Hell is calling you to insignificance. Hell is calling you to destruction. But I stand here, and hell doesn't have the pulpit. And I'm calling you to something better than hell is calling you to. Mister and sister that are here today, I am calling you to something besides mediocrity. I'm calling you to nobility in your life. I'm calling you to noble plans. I'm calling you to noble action. Do. Don't just think. Don't just plan. Don't just dream. But do. I'm calling you to nobility so you can fulfill this inner purpose for your life. So you can feel like you have done something with your life. Everything I'm sharing with you is about making an impact on this world for God, with God, and through God. And I challenge you to change your little corner of the world and change your people and your friends and your neighbors and and your family by impacting them for God. Noble people do noble deeds. Bow your heads.